This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 621. We did actually initiate a COVID-19 induced art study here in Cleveland. Um, in record time, we got a protocol approved by the FDA and we enrolled the first sites and actually enrolled the first patients all within about a six week span, which is unheard of. So there are, if it's the correct term, some positives coming out of this. Um, but I have to say here in the home office, we're very, we've been very sensible. Um, I've been working remotely and also in the office. And as I said, I've just been amazed at what can be accomplished virtually. Rather, like I said, our capital raise, we did that completely virtually. It's just amazing that we did all that over the phone. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Ivor McLeod, CFO of Athersis. When veteran CFO Ivor McLeod first contemplating joining an early stage pharma company, the condition known as acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, was not appearing in nightly news headlines. Nevertheless, ARDS had captured McLeod's attention, and so had Atheris. The Cleveland, Ohio-based company with fewer than 100 employees impressed this seasoned finance leader with tours of duty at big pharma giants such as Hoffman LaRoche and Merck Research Labs. The company met one of McLeod's foremost criteria. Atheris was focused on the area of medicine known as critical care a space McLeod characterizes as having high unmet medical needs. Our discussion with Ivor McLeod begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. We're speaking to Ivor McLeod, CFO of Athersis. Ivor, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure to be with you. Ivor, we always begin with this question, which is to have you look back for us and share with us some of the experiences 
you feel prepared you to become a CFO, to prepared you to be a finance leader? What comes to mind? Yes, it's it's a great question. Um, the first thing I would do is actually go back to my education prior to taking on a finance role. Um, a professor, I think back to, I, I was actually at the University of Arizona for my master's degree. I, I did a bachelor's in Scotland at St. Andrews. But the professor insisted and graded us upon our participation in class. You were obliged to speak up. You were obliged to either ask a question or make a comment. And this was in a class of about 30 people. And I look back on it as um, wonderful preparation, quite honestly, because finance, you have the privilege of looking broadly across the business. And inevitably, we find ourselves in meetings and we're hesitant to speak up. Um, I never had that problem. And I credit that to Professor Taylor. And I, I have no doubt that he listens to things like this. So Professor Taylor, if you're listening, thank you. Um, other examples, um, I, one of my first jobs after my MBA was actually not in healthcare. It was at a private day school in Tucson, Arizona. And I was a, a finance group of one, but I very quickly realized the importance of financial information being more forward looking. Uh, yes, it's fine to keep the score and that's important, but it, it, in terms of predictive qualities, uh, I, I found it incredibly important. And the lesson I, I learned, the headmaster, we were one of several private schools in Tucson, Arizona. And his one metric that he gauged success on was enrollment. He wanted to be fully enrolled. And he wanted to be able to say that whenever he spoke in public. And as a consequence, being a private school, this um, required a certain amount of financial aid to students. Now, we were a, a school fourth grade through 12th grade, and he was giving out an awful lot of financial aid to fourth graders. And it was me that did all the financial projections, which showed that we were going to be bankrupt probably in nine or 10 years, because giving financial aid to fourth graders, you're actually going to have to give them financial aid all the way through to 12th grade. That's quite different from giving people financial aid in 12th grade. Um, and, and I think that taught me a very valuable lesson um, in terms of, like I say, the, the forward-looking predictive uh, potential of financial information. And then another example, um, perhaps my first, in fact, it was my first foray into healthcare. I was working for a company actually in Reston, Virginia, um, known as a Beltway Bandit. We were, we were looking for lots of government contracts, but... We had small self-help electronic devices, and it was a small finance team, um, and I was actually the controller there. And I realized very quickly that the financial department had an awful lot of information, but really didn't understand the business. There was, there was a, a huge gap. And this again, looking at the information that they sat on, everything from the accounts payable person to the payroll person, they had an awful lot of information that really wasn't being shared with the business people because they didn't understand the business. And so that's when I realized that business acumen was, was really one of the qualities of a financial leader, quite honestly, and, and a critically important one. So um, those are perhaps three examples. I, I'm happy to give more, but, but 
I, I also like to say that I'm learning all the time. Now, also along the way in your career, you worked in Germany uh, for a period for a, a therapeutics company. And correct me if I, I have this wrong. And you, you also uh, joined Hoffman LaRoche at uh, some point in time as well. Can you uh, sort of expose the path for us, how you went from one to the other? Yes, it, it, it's a very interesting story. So at the time, I was actually the CFO for Beringer Mannheim, the therapeutics division. Therapeutics because they were pharmaceuticals and biologics. And yes, we were purchased by Hoffman LaRoche. And it was interesting because I was actually an expatriate in Germany um, and I fully expected to be returned to the US and I was fine with that. I, I had a, a great run and I was looking forward to getting back to the US. But I had the opportunity to meet with the CEO of the pharmaceutical division of Hoffman LaRoche. At the time, it was Franz Humer, who later became chairman and he's had a great career. He was chairman of Diageo. I believe he's still on the board of City, Citigroup. Um, but I met with him and I gave him a list of, I believe it was seven items. And I told him that, look, um, quite honestly, we will need to get cleared by the various authorities for the transition to go through, the, the transaction to go through. But here's seven things you really need to pay attention to. And they were critical items with huge value implications. Everything from decisions that needed to be made on co-promotion deals to decisions that needed to be made in late stage development. You know, I had a bird's eye view of all of the things that were important in Birmingham, Mannheim. And it was very interesting. He, he was quite surprised and quite delighted actually, because it was gonna take them a while to figure these things out and they were all time sensitive. And as a consequence, he offered me a job. He, he wanted me to go and work with the head of research, uh, putting the research um, operation together, integrating the two research teams. So, you know, <laughs> thinking I was working myself out of a job, I actually worked myself into a job. Um, and uh, yes, moved to Switzerland and took up the role of head of finance for research. That's such an interesting so so the research piece of uh, the LaRoche business. Can you tell us what uh, what does that mean exactly for you know when you as a point of comparison for all other finance leaders? What are the types of things that you're paying attention to? Clearly, it's not straight up sales growth or earnings. You're looking at a whole different set of measures. No, that's right. I mean, back in those days. A, a large research budget was viewed by investors as a good thing. And yes, one tends to set a level that one's going to invest. But within research, it's it's all of, and it's otherwise known as discovery, which I think is is a better definition of what actually goes on. These are the people, the scientists all over the world that are discovering new medications. You know, it starts off in test tubes, then it goes into animals, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you measure really your progress in terms of milestones, um, proof of concept, um, entry into humans, et cetera, th those types of measures. Um, you find that your largest expenditure is really people, people and equipment. Um, each, each experiment 
I think the probability of the experiment reaching the market is less than 5%. It's, it's less than 1%. And yet these are tenacious individuals who are not giving up on their mission of contributing to the overall healthcare of, of patients. And, and it's a fascinating, fascinating experience. So as a finance person, my job was really to enable them. I didn't want them to worry about resources. I didn't want them to worry about all those things. I would take care of that, make sure that they had everything to enable them to continue on this path. Um, most medications um, have been killed in late stage development four or five times. And it's just the tenacious nature of these scientists that forced them through. Um, so it was a great experience for me. Um, it, it was sad because we had to consolidate the number of sites. I think we ended up going down to about eight. Uh, we had to close some around the world. And, and that's, that's always the, 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 the most, the hardest thing to do. Um, but we, we came out of it very strong. And, and I'd have to say that Roche has been unbelievably successful. And, and, and some of it is the experiments that I was looking over during my tenure there. Now, were you a, a member of the board of directors at, at Roche? Roche moved me to North America to take the CFO position. That was after my tenure in Switzerland. And it was there that I, I was on the board of, of the North American affiliate. I, I, I like asking this question. When you do meet peers from other industries, other finance leaders, do they look at the CFO role different from you? Are, are the issues or challenges that occupy their professional lives uh, different from those that uh, set apart your CFO responsibilities in some way? I mean, I think the nuts and bolts are very similar, but the overall businesses are very, very different. Um, if, if one thinks of the pharmaceutical business, it's all about risk. Um, like I say, early experiments rarely see the light of day in terms of developing into medicines. Um, you know, you, you, you take big swings at big disease states and you're not always successful and you have to be prepared for failure. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting because it, it 90% of the time things don't work. And, and so it, it's, it's easy to, to turn things down because more likely than not, it's not going to succeed. Um, so I think, I think in, in terms of risk, that, that's what sets us aside. And then, of course, there's the regulations. It's one of the most heavily regulated industries. You have to be very careful every step of the way. And I think appropriately so. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're developing products that are going to go into human beings. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of differences in terms of the business. But like I say, the nuts and bolts are pretty much the same. Raising cash, cash projections, um, keeping track of budgets, you know, these types of things. Very similar. So the next chapter, it seems to me uh, you have a career in some of these larger pharmaceutical organizations. And then uh, you enter smaller companies. And I don't know if they're startups, but earlier stage companies or how would you characterize the chapter that follows? Yes, yeah, so following, well, following Roche, I did go to another large company, and, and that was Merck. Um, and of course, you know, Merck being a Dow component, 
that was another large company, something like 80,000 employees worldwide. Um, and there I was actually the head of finance for R&D. And that was a very exciting uh, time, actually. Uh, the highlight of which was seeing Keytruda Pembrolizumab across the finish line. Um, and that's you know, one of the blockbuster cancer drugs today. Um, I, I went to Azai. Azai was a Japanese company. I was recruited from Merck. And, and at Azai, I was actually CFO of North America once again. And Azai, while I would say is a medium-sized pharmaceutical company, they were heavily into neurology and oncology, both areas of which I, I was very interested in. But my first real exposure to a small company is my present experience, um, Athesis. And Athesis is a, a, a very unique company. Um, yes, they're small, less than 100 employees. It's a regenerative medicine company. Um, you can tell by looking at my, my resume that I've always been attracted to scientists and science and good science. Regenerative medicine, what, what I think sets Athesis apart from a lot of the other opportunities I looked at is they're very focused on what we refer to as the critical care space. This is a high area of unmet medical need. Their two leading indications are ischemic stroke and ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And they have fast track designation from the FDA. They have good data in both. And they are currently in phase three in both areas. And there are more indications to come. ARDS actually has got a lot of press recently because, of course, it is the leading cause of death in COVID-19 infected patients, those that eventually end up on the ventilator. It's ARDS that they're dying of. This is um, unfortunate. It's a very similar uh, condition to people who die from influenza or pneumonia or MERS or SARS. Or And when I joined the company, um, it was the science that attracted me initially because there is no known treatment for ARDS. Uh, and here we are with fast track designation, good phase two data going into phase three. Hopefully um, we'll be on the market in a couple of years. That would be fantastic. And, and to have an impact on that part of the healthcare market, I mean, that to me would just be a phenomenal topping on my career. Um, so that and the management team, um, the company has been around for 25 years, which in itself is unusual, but the leadership primarily are friends from the Stanford Medical School. So they're all from the Bay Area and my wife is from the Bay Area. So we had an awful lot in common, um, but we came, they came out to Cleveland. Um, Cleveland is where we're based and of course, Everybody has heard of the Cleveland Clinic. Everyone's heard of Case Western Reserve, not so much University Hospital, but this is a hub for regenerative medicine. Um, so was it the small company that, that attracted me? I mean, I mean, I must admit, I'm enjoying walking into the office next door for a decision rather than flying across the Atlantic. That, that's, that's refreshing. Um, and I feel like I'm really contributing. Um, you know, in, in a company of 80,000 people, one does have influence, but but limited. And there's a lot to be said for structural inertia in some of these big companies. But 
somewhere like Athesis, if you drop the ball, people people know. Uh, and I like that. It's it's an exciting environment, dynamic, lots going on. Um, so that's that's really why I joined. I, I I think you mentioned the company's over twenty uh, years old today. It's it is publicly held. Uh, I'm curious uh, in terms of capital structure. I, I often ask finance leaders, would they prefer that the company have been private? Or when you made a decision to join the company, did did capital structure come into uh, your decision making? Yes. So. Having worked for private companies and public companies, would I prefer for us to be private? Absolutely. Um, the the pressure that one is under being a public company is is very very different. All of the reporting requirements, the disclosures, all of that type of stuff. Um, part of the reason, though, that Athesis went public was access to capital, um, and that at the end of the day is is you know necessary. So. Um, was I excited about the prospect of being CFO of a public company? Um, yes, I, I, I mean, the reporting to one side, I'm, I'm, I'm always taking a bit of an external look at things and, and meeting with potential investors, talking to banks, that's all very exciting. Um, but I have to say that it was the science that attracted me, not necessarily the capital structure. Um, it, it's been a very interesting experience for me because as you can probably imagine, companies like Roche and Merck, they don't have to worry about cash flow. I mean, yes, they do projections and yes, they make investments and yes, the lease versus buy and all those types of financial calculations. But here at Athesis, you know, we rely on the capital markets. Um, we have to raise money. We had a very successful raise in April um, and it was 100% virtual, which was a completely new experience for me. Um, so it's exciting, um, but it's necessary. Um, do I have any regrets? None. Would I prefer to be private if we had, um, access to capital? Yes, absolutely. You mentioned that, uh, this is truly a, a, a seasoned leadership team with some very experienced people involved, but, um, at the same time, someone, uh, with a resume like yours, uh, could have, uh, done this sooner could have done it maybe 10 years ago what what uh, made this the right time that's that's a great question um and my wife wonders the same thing because i was based in new jersey i've lived in new jersey longer than i've ever lived anywhere else um i'm originally from scotland uh, i was used to moving every three years new jersey i was there almost 20 years and here I am moving to Cleveland, something one typically does in one's 20s, not one's 50s. Um, why now? Um, because I could. Um, I, I, I'm at the sort of stage in my career where my kids are all through college. I could take a risk. And to me, a calculated risk. I, I had looked at the number of opportunities. This one I felt very confident in. Like I say, they have data solid leadership and great, great uh, vision for the future. So um, that's really why I, I, I could afford to. I, I think if I, if you rewind 20 years, uh, five kids, the prospect of college, all of these types of things, maybe I'd have been a little hesitant. I, I would have liked the security of a Roche or a Merck. Um, 
but but right now I, I, I can do it. And I did. Can you give us some sense of how the offerings uh, that Atheris has, how they're likely, and I'm going to use the word commercialized, can you, three years into the future, how mature will these offerings be? What milestones will have been met or achieved? And I know you're, you're publicly held, so you can't look forward for us, but try to help us understand what's going to unfold here. And again, this is all hypothetical. Um, so this is me speaking. Um, if you look at our product, our potential product in the treatment of ischemic stroke, it's one of the leading causes of death, debilitation, quite frankly, all across the world. And there is nothing. Um, I shouldn't say nothing. This TPA from Genentech, um, which is a thrombolytic, which has to be administered within three to four hours. Now, that may sound like a lot of time, but you have to determine whether it's an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke. Ischemic is a blockage. Hemorrhagic is a bleed. If you administer TPA to a hemorrhagic stroke patient, you're going to kill them. So you have to determine which type of stroke it is. That requires an MRI. Now, you've only got three hours. You've fallen down at home. We've got to get that person to the hospital. We've got to get them an MRI. So a lot of times the medication isn't given because outside that window, it's dangerous. The other possible therapy is mechanical intervention. You know, it, it's amazing what, what medicine can do these days, but this is um, more or less going in and pulling the clot out. This can only be done in, in limited cases. Um, it, we're getting better and better at it. I, I, I hope we continue to get better at it. But again, it's, it's, it's limited in its potential. Our product, potential product, can be administered within, within a 36-hour window. So that opens up all kinds of possibilities. And while we're experimenting in ischemic stroke right now, hemorrhagic stroke will come later. And our product also can be administered like type O blood. Um, you don't need a direct match. You don't need anything like that. It's very simple. It, it's in a small vial. Uh, you, you thaw it, put it in a bag of saline, and it's administered intravenously um, in about 45 minutes. So what will the offering look like? Um, it, it's quite honestly, it's going to be fantastic for stroke patients. Um, that's, that's what we're looking forward to. And then acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, not sure which one of these indications will come first because, of course, COVID has um, made it interesting in terms of predicting which centers you're able to enroll and get patients and that type of thing. But acute respiratory distress syndrome, there is nothing. There is nothing. Um, these poor patients going on a ventilator um, they're more or less, you're postponing the inevitable. And then when people, if they do get off the ventilator, typically they have, uh, you know, they'll have fibrosis. Some of them have post-traumatic stress syndrome because they've been put into a medically induced coma to keep them, keep them still while they're on the respirator. Our product, one, when administered a single dose to people on the ventilator, we got a large percentage of people off the ventilator within seven days. 
Then we did a one-year follow-up to look at their quality of life, and they were pretty much back to normal. So again, you know, you think about the possibilities and acute respiratory distress syndrome. It, it's like I say, it's got a lot of publicity because of COVID-19, but this is what people who get pneumonia die of. This is what people who get influenza. This is any other type of pathogen. So again, um, giving patients hope, quite honestly, um, and and yes, you know, fingers crossed. It's it's just a few years away. So it's very exciting, um, and and yes, that's that's why I joined. And and Gil van Barklen, our, our CEO and chairman, part of the reason he brought me on board is um, look, he, he's an academic. He's 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 got two or three academics with him. He's starting to build out the management team with a view towards commercialization. He hired me. He hired Maya Hansen, a senior uh, a senior partner from McKinsey with great experience in supply chain. He hired Greg Leposky, who has 30 years of bio, biotech uh, manufacturing experience. And we're starting to lay out the path. So what I've described is, is entirely within reach. And um, again, that's part of the reason I joined. Now, you've mentioned uh, uh, a few times now how COVID has brought new awareness to some of the conditions uh, that your offerings can uh, help treat. How has the pandemic, though, um, and again, you arrived in January, I think, of this year. So and, and within two or three months, of course, this new environment begins to surface. Yes. So I joined at the end of January. So I had about two or three weeks before COVID-19 was getting a lot of publicity. Um, so fortunately, I was able to go around and meet everybody um, and start to get to know everybody, which, which I'm very grateful for. Um, when COVID-19 hit, we very sensibly took several steps. I mean, the first of which was, if you can work at home, please do. Um, and and we, we made sure that everybody had the appropriate technology. Um, we have laboratories here with ongoing experiments. So we started to stagger shifts because experiments had to continue, but we didn't want people bumping into each other. Um, did it slow us down? Here, here at home office, I'd have to say no, actually it didn't. Um, the biggest impact for us and for other pharmaceutical companies is out at the sites where you're conducting the clinical studies. Um, some sites continued regardless. I shouldn't say regardless. With, with the appropriate precautions, some shut down completely. They were not accepting new patients. They were 100% dedicated to treating COVID-19 patients. So that part of the hospital institution was put on hold. And that I think has impacted clinical studies broadly across the world, um, because this is a worldwide phenomenon, not just a US one. So has it impacted our clinical trials? Well, um, it, it's really too early to tell. So far, so good. Um, we did actually initiate a COVID-19 induced art study here in Cleveland. Um, in record time, we got a protocol approved by the FDA, and we enrolled the first sites and actually enrolled the first patients all within about a six-week span, which is unheard of. So 
there are, if it's the correct term, some positives coming out of this. Um, but I have to say, here in the home office, we're very, we've been very sensible. Um, I've been working remotely and also in the office. And as I said, I've, I've just been amazed at what can be accomplished virtually. Um, it, it really is a phenomenal. Rather, like I said, our capital raise, we did that completely virtually. Now, this is typically something one does with a bunch of road shows. You fly to Boston, San Francisco, New York. You make presentations. You go out for dinners. You, you, you mix with bankers, these types of things. I mean, it's 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 just amazing that we did all that over the phone. Well, thank you, Ivor. I did uh, throw a few extra questions at you, and we're finally up to our uh, finance strategic moment question. I think you've already touched on a few for us, but this is where we ask for just one instance where your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to see an opportunity or a risk and you responded. It can be uh, any time during the course of your career. What would you uh, share with us? Gosh, there, there are quite a few. I mean, it's interesting that one of one of the more significant ones was early in my career and actually before I got into healthcare, I worked for an iron beam milling company. What on earth is iron beam milling? Well, it's large um, pieces of capital equipment um, and iron guns are used to remove impurities from substrates molecule by molecule. Um, Probably the biggest application is microcircuits. Um, but anyway, um, we were in the business of manufacturing iron beam guns. And these were custom pieces of machinery. Um, each piece was made at the machine shop and took anywhere from six to eight weeks to make. Um, we were in heavy competition with two or three other companies, but we felt ours was the best. I was actually at the time materials control manager, even though I had the title of VP finance. And it bothered me because we had a backlog of orders, probably eight to 10 of these, what we called three centimeter iron guns. And it was pretty clear to me that a lot of people were not ordering because not only was there a backlog, but once we got through the backlog, it was going to be at least eight weeks before they got their piece of equipment. So I sat down and did some calculations and realized that there was no reason why this needed to be custom. We actually needed to stock all of the different parts. Um, and so with very little capital investment, what initially was an eight to 10 week delivery became about an eight hour delivery and people would place an order in the morning and it was rare that we didn't ship the same day and the business picked up um it was just it, it, it to me it was a strategic insight it was the company had just got so used to having a backlog and so used to eight-week delivery and so used to placing one-off orders with machine shops I met with the machine shops and asked them, look, if you made 10 of these, could it be made in the same time as one? Absolutely. So we started to stock all of these items. Um, but it was it was all from a financial perspective because it was frustrating to me that, that 
this was a, an easy business and cash flow picked up. Um, we, we just got generally much, much healthier. And actually that was at a time when the CFO came over to me and was incredibly grateful. And he's the one that told me to go and do the CPA. He said, you really should get a CPA. You, you have a future in finance. You have a future in accounting. You need the professional qualification. And it was interesting. I'd never really considered it. So I did go and get the CPA. I'm, I'm actually to this day licensed in the state of Virginia, which is frightening. But uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. And then once I got the CPA, he actually encouraged me to leave. Not because for any other reason, and he wasn't going anywhere, and he saw potential. And that was actually when I left and joined the self-help electronic healthcare device company. Um, so I credit uh, Tom Hennigan was his name, um, a, a really great guy. He guided me um, appropriately. And uh, yeah, without him, I probably wouldn't have done the CPA. Maybe I'd have gone in, in a different direction. When we return, Ivor McLeod enters the mentoring round after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're back with CFO Ivor McLeod, and we're entering the mentoring round. Ivor, the first time you stepped in to a finance leadership role, if you think back now, first time you were taking on the CFO responsibilities, what piece of advice would you go back and give yourself? What is that you wish someone had told you this at the time? What would it be? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think get used to drawing outside the lines. Um, while people will tell you there's a playbook, um, you have to be prepared for just about anything. And you know, people look for specific job descriptions, that type of thing. I, I think it's impossible to capture everything on a piece of paper. And I would have been better prepared, I think, if someone had said, yeah, you're going to be drawing outside the lines a lot. We always ask uh, our guests to reflect a little bit on the personal side of things. If they have a habit or maybe a daily routine that they think in some way has allowed them to succeed on the professional side or kept them on an even keel over the years, do you have a habit or something uh, of a personal routine that you have that you think might fit that uh, description? Yes, it's interesting. It's it's a question you probably should ask for, of people who've worked with me, but two or three things that come to mind. I mean, one, I've never let title get in the way of anything. I, I'm, I'm a roll-up sleeves, help um, type of guy. Always been that way. Um, 
I'm always on time to meetings. I'm always punctual. Uh, if it's a 10 o'clock conference call, I'm on at two minutes to 10. If it's a nine o'clock meeting, I'm there. I've always been respectful of other people's time. I'm a good listener. Um, something someone told me a long time ago, you've probably heard it, is you have two ears and one mouth, and you should use them in that proportion. And I'm always prepared to listen to people. Um, and, and that, I think people would tell you, is, is, is a good quality. And then lastly, I'm responsive. Um, if someone leaves me a message, I get back to them. I get back to them as quickly as I can. Um, and, and as a consequence, people know they can rely on me. Um, those are just some basic qualities. We always like to ask also for a book recommendation, if there was something that influenced your thinking or just a book maybe that you enjoyed along the way, anything come to mind when we ask for a book? So can I give you three books? Yes, you can. Our, our, our shelf is getting crowded, but that will make room. No worries. Uh, one will not surprise you. The other two might. So first of all, I would recommend uh, um, Stephen Bragg. Um, he, he's a well-published individual but it's called the new cfo financial leadership manual um it, it's not very deep but it's very broad and, and it gives you a very good idea of the sort of things that you should be prepared for as a new cfo and why i found it helpful was you you learn your blind spots relatively quickly and those competencies you're going to have to surround yourself with because of your blind spots. So I found that very helpful. The second one is, it's called The Winner Within by Pat Riley. Uh, and yes, that's Pat Riley, the basketball coach. Um, and it's not necessarily about basketball, but it's about teamwork. And it's about getting the best out of your team. And even getting superstars to a new level, because of course, Pat Riley was incredibly successful with the Lakers and then also Miami. But that's, that's a really, really good read. It's quite an old book. I might even read it again myself. Um, then the last one, this one will surprise you. It's called Paddington at Large by Michael Bond. It's, it's a kid's book. And I just remember reading that as a kid and there's a scene in that book where Paddington, and for those of you who don't know, Paddington is a bear. And Paddington was found at Paddington Station. That's why he got the name Paddington. And he's a very adorable bear. But there's this one scene where he's on a quiz show. And the game show host asks him a question. He says, if you take an eight-foot plank of wood, you cut it in half, and you cut it in half again, how long is each piece? Paddington, quick as a flash, says eight feet. And the game show host says, no, 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 it's two feet. And Paddington says, not if you cut it lengthways. And why is that important? Because it taught me at a very early age to look at things from a different angle. And I found that incredibly helpful. And there's a number of other things in that book. So don't underestimate the importance of kids' books. Um, that one in particular had, had a huge influence on me. Well, that's a great, and that's a first, and that's a, some great selections for us. So thank you for those, Ivor. We're up to our final question where we ask you finally to look forward for us. 
and share what are your priorities as we go forward over this next 12 months? What are your finance priorities? Yes. So internally, it's identifying the competencies and capabilities that we're going to require over the next two, three years as we prepare for commercialization. Because of course, being somewhat of a cost center right now, that's a, that's a different set of skills. So it's working with the team, it's building out those capabilities, it's further developing the people in-house. So that's one area. The second area equally as important is getting more visibility externally, um, getting my own name out there, um, getting to know more potential investors, getting to know more banks, um, and really building up Athesis's profile, again, as we approach commercialization. Because as I said before, we're definitely going to have to rely on the capital markets for funding, um, at least until commercialization. And so raising our profile externally is going to be critically important. And um, it, it's going to be fun too. So navigating this virtually, it's, it's, it's sort of precluded me from flying to New York City and Boston, but hopefully we'll be back to that in the not too distant future so it can be virtual and in person. But yes, raising the profile of the company externally is a priority. Ivor McLeod, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.